You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome back, queers. This is season three, episode two of Thesis on Joan. Thesis on Joan is a podcast dedicated to amplifying voices from the LGBTQ plus community in the New York performing arts scene and examining the industry from a queer perspective. Join us as we sit down with groundbreaking theater folks, both on stage and behind the curtain. For many queers, theater has been an escape, and this podcast looks to have open conversations on where we've come from and where we're headed as a community while queering the canon along the way. So we're super excited today because we have a very special guest who we've been dreaming about for a while and can't believe that this actually happened uh, we're, you're going to be hearing today from the incredible Paula Vogel. And we like just recorded the interview. So I feel like we're both just like still smiling and just like <laughs> staring wide eyed at the camera. <laughs> incredible. Um, Holly, wasn't Paula like on our dream list that we first put together for the podcast? Yeah. Oh yeah. We had, we had a good like brainstorm session and then we have an enormous list spreadsheet of people we want to talk to and some of you might be on it i'm sure i'm sure and then <laughs> yeah the bapala has been on there you know since the beginning um and i just got to see uh the how i learned to drive production that's currently playing at the freedman it is incredible it was my first time seeing that play in person mm -hmm. i'd read it um and we'll get more into it but if you haven't got a ticket already you should definitely go they have the 30 under 35 program Ooh. so check that out barely yeah. qualify still yep um, <laughs> glad they raised the age maybe we'll go up to 40 <laughs> and yeah i just went on like a paula vogel play kick and i read all of paula's or not all of but i read several of paula's plays and a lot of them are available at the new york public library if anyone also wants to read them they're just yeah. as fun well not just as fun but they're very fun and interesting to read as well and potentially uh you could go see some at the toft yeah, well, at the right? Theater on yeah. Film and Tape Archive mm -hmm. at the Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. Which you'll hear more about today. Um, so let's introduce our guest, Paula Vogel. Paula Vogel is a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright whose plays include Indecent, How I Learned to Drive, The Long Christmas Ride Home, The Mineola Twins, The Baltimore Waltz, Hot and Throbbing, Desdemona, and Baby Makes Seven, The Oldest Profession, and A Civil War Christmas. She is the founder and co-curator of Paula Vogel's Bard at the Gate, an online reading series currently produced in partnership with the McCarter Theater Center. 
Upcoming projects include The Mother Play, an adaptation of They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Co-directed by Marion Elliott and Stephen Hoggett, a memoir, and a book on playwriting. Awards include a Pulitzer Prize, a Tony nomination, the American Theater Hall of Fame Award, two Obies, the Lilly Award, the New York Drama Critics Circle Award, a Guggenheim, and a Pew Charitable Trust Award. She founded and ran the MFA Playwriting Program at Brown University and served as the O'Neill Chair of Playwriting at Yale School of Drama. She is a member of the Dramatist Guild and is honored by awards given in her name by the American College Theater Festival and the Vineyard Theater. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, well, thank you so much for being here. I, I We can't say enough how thrilled we are to have you. This is, like, so exciting for us. Thank you again. Oh, thank you. Thanks Thanks for having this podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, you're one of our really dream guests. Right yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So this is your second season? Our third, actually. Yeah. Whoa! Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. And we usually start with our guests. If you want to share your, your name and anything about how you identify, maybe in this hour, this minute, you know, if that feels like it's true to you right now. Um, sure. Uh, we were just uh, talking before we started that um, I tend not to use pronouns. Um, uh, I came of age uh, way before when we were still looking at, at sexuality and gender as a binary thing. And so um, I don't know if I'd been born 20 or 30 years later, what I would be doing in terms of my identity. Um, I have been uh, really kind of uh, sticking to the notion of I am in a, a, a woman's body. Um, and I feel that that's really a, a kind of welcome platform for subversion. So there's something for me, um, I was very well endowed as a young girl, hence how I learned to drive. Um, but there's something for me about, you know, I'm also a cigar smoker. And it seems much more transgressive because people see a large-breasted, short-haired senior citizen now Um walking somewhere and lighting up a cigar. And I really kind of love um, the collision of gender. Um, and I feel that now that I'm 70, um, and particularly being influenced by my, my partner, uh, Ann Sterling, that many people know as Ann Fausto Sterling, um, who's Sexing the Body, came out a couple of years ago and 
and myths of gender, um, that I, I think about identity um, uh, in a kind of uh, constantly morphing way. And I've become more secure with that. If, for example, you identify yourself as a woman, that definition of what a woman means is going to be changing every day of your life. Um, and I, so I'm really happy to be living in a time when uh, the notion of gender has become so much more flexible, so much more a creation of the individual rather than a policing of our educational system, our families, our churches, our synagogues, all of our houses of religion, and our government. So one of the things I'm delighted about your podcast is um, we're, we're in a state of war right now. And I'm also very fortunate in that I've been able to, to fight in whatever way I can in a theatrical arena. How fun is that? Um, how joyful is that? Um, so that's, that's kind of where I am today. And we wanted to jump into um, how I learned to drive and talk about that first. So this Pulitzer Prize winning play is finally on Broadway, making its Broadway debut. So what does it mean to you to have this on Broadway, like stages after a very successful run and career off Broadway? Um, how I Learned to Drive, I created in Alaska at a theater company, Perseverance Theater, that had 50 seats. And then it transferred... It never, it never opened there. It transferred to the Vineyard Theater in 1997 that had 125 seats. Um, and I have to be aware that I am being now at age 70. I wrote it when I was 45. This is the way I feel that American theater plays with visibility, being mindful that this season there are two revivals by African-American women playwrights. One, the sensational for colored girls I saw on Broadway as a young woman, and it blew my mind. <laughs> and the other is Trouble in Mind. So one of the things I've been saying is it is actually a kind of luxury to be done as a woman, or whatever gender we are today, um, a woman playwright in my lifetime. Because it doesn't happen. Um, it may happen after we're dead, but things are morphing so quickly on Broadway to be having um, all of these wonderful plays by African-American writers. I just saw Confederates blew me away, mm -hmm. you know, to have people like Dominique Morisot, to have people like Lloyd Sa um, writing The Chinese Lady and uh, just amazing, prolific work. Um, we're at a time where I feel that so many writers are getting past the gatekeepers. Um, and I feel that, that hopefully COVID, hopefully the sea change uh, and, and all of the amazing initiatives of playwrights in this generation um, has changed that for good. Yeah. So do you think, what, what do you think has changed primarily since How I Learned to Drive first premiered to have Broadway producers and audiences ready for this production? Well, um, one of the things I experienced was a lot of people telling me 
that, of course, it wouldn't transfer to Broadway. One, because women don't write universal plays. Um, Great. <laughs> yeah. I like that a lot. Um, and two, that my play would be too upsetting. What, what I think we do is I think if we really want to look at upsetting uh, uh, stories and subject matters, what we do is we either uh, transfer plays from London um, that have a much different uh, aesthetic and notion. They're also into entertainment, but they're also into let's examine what's happening in our midst. Or we do revivals, you know, Tennessee Williams, um, Arthur Miller, uh, or we, we do Shakespeare. Um, I mean, so those are kind of the three areas that's keeping whatever muscle we have that I feel that um, the Greeks wanted us to have when they came up with this little thing of goat dance in uh, 400 B.C., that the obligation of theater was to pay homage to the gods and to make all citizens attend the same performance. Senators, I don't know if you know this, senators had to attend. They required. Had, <laughs> yes, it was required. Rich citizens had to rotate who was producing the festival. Had to. Wow. It was their civic obligation. And this always kills me, but it's always said in the textbooks, Women and slaves were permitted to attend for free. Mm-hmm. So just let me think about that audience for a moment. And let's yeah. say like Medea or the Trojan women. And it is making the Greek senators and citizens look at their misogyny, look at how they treat foreigners. Um, Trojan women makes the senators who voted for war Look at what it does to civilians, to women and children. And I just think, you know, and they also had a lot of, pardon me, they had a lot of fart jokes in their comedies. Right. Um, you know, you're, if you were a playwright back then, you had to write a comedy and a tragedy on the same subject. So, you know, you put in a lot of fart jokes to Trojan women and suddenly it's a musical comedy. No, it's not. But. <laughs> We're, so we're, I feel that we've been having a benign censorship since the 1980s, since Ronald Reagan. We've cut back our art funding. We have been slowly cutting back all of the art programs in high schools and middle schools. That's what's cut out of the budget, right? Mm-hmm. We've been cutting back foundation support, philanthropy to the arts. Um, and again, you know, so many societies really honor and 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 hold precious their arts that that's what makes us a culture that's what allows us regardless of the hierarchy of the culture talk to each other about what is happening in our midst and um uh hopefully now this this younger generation i mean i i have to say i I keep getting excited every time i think i'm burning out i I don't want to do this anymore you know, I read about three to 500 plays a year by younger writers. Wow. And I read the plays and I'm like, man, Vogel, you can't quit this. It's <laughs> way too exciting. And, you know, you got you to gotta stay in there long enough to see how these writers are transforming, you know, m- my world. 
Oh my gosh. I don't know if I'm jealous or like intimidated by three to 500 plays <laughs> a year. Oh, you know, well, you, you're going to be doing this as an educator. This is true. I read a right? lot. <laughs> yeah. But Bless yes, you. you learn how to do it quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, we wanted to ask you about something you said in a recent interview um, with the New York Times about how I learned to drive. And you mentioned that you wanted to avoid the myth that women become lesbians as a result of sexual trauma yes. and end up fearing or hating men. Yes. So just wanted to ask a little further. Why do you think this myth is so prevalent? especially in art and dangerous and how do you subvert it in your work? Well, you know, I growing up of an age and, uh, we're, we were really taught that lesbianism and homosexuality was uh, a deviant, uh, state. Um, it was treated that way. It was treated with shock therapy um, girls and boys who uh, would not disavow their sexuality were institutionalized. That happened a lot in the 50s and 60s. So I, I was personally concerned in that I think the most wonderful thing that has happened to me in my life is being lesbian, um, falling in love with women. Um, I think for me it's been uh, just very life-giving. And the last thing I want is to be used as data for false science. Um, I think that uh, American culture wants to find an easy, false answer to everything. And there are many, many, many individualized reasons that we create the path we create. And I'll be damned if someone's going to say, oh, well, you know, uh, Miss Pedophilia of 1997, one hates men, which is what, what the most prevalent uh, uh, myth is about lesbians. Two became uh, a lesbian because of um, an early childhood uh, sexual abuse, et cetera, and so forth. There's another myth that drives me crazy personally at a personal level. And I think it hurts me as much and perhaps more and the mythology of what makes a lesbian is the notion that gay men are predators and pedophiles. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly the last time we went backwards, we're going backwards right now. Um, the last time we went backwards in the 70s with Anita Bryant and uh, California passing resolutions that were uh, really punitive to gay teachers, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, my brother was a librarian. He started as a children's librarian. He loved children. He looked forward to reading hour with Uncle Carl at the San Francisco public all week long. <laughs> that was his thing to do. He was fired by two heterosexual women who didn't want a pedophile in the library system. Um, and I think what that does to our egos. And I'm sure they've done the same with lesbians and, and librarians. And I have, every time I hear of, you know, the drag queen reading hour, I particularly love that. So, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's something that, um, I feel that we can fight. Um, and I feel like we go two steps forward and then one step back. 
Um, so the progress is much slower than I had hoped for mm-hmm. as, as a young woman. Mm-hmm. But do you, do you do feel like you're seeing progress? Um, I feel that I'm seeing progress, but I feel that the progress is very much becoming... I really think that we're in a discourse that could be heading towards civil war. Mm. I feel that there are two United States at this point in view, that what has been very successful with our uh, Russian asset president is his um, fanning the flames of a white supremacist separatist culture. Um, And it's very, very dangerous. I feel that within the blue portions of the state, I feel that uh, within younger generations, the really great thing is that younger generations come forward. It's not a big deal to them, to many, many, many of them, unless they're really being, and I feel like it's brainwashing, uh, that's similar to a cult in terms of the extreme right. Um, And what we have to start thinking about is, you know, how do how do we how do we help convert people out of the cult is is my question um sexuality has always been a wedge um this absolutely happened in the Weimar Republic going into uh Hitler's empire i mean we see it it's a very useful tool to make people scared of their sexuality mm-hmm. yeah so we can have a whole offshoot podcast episode all about yeah, this. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the other thing that i'm mindful about and you know i i i worried about and tried for maybe 20 years is i want to put things out there that's happening which is four out of ten of us and that's probably underreported experience some form of molestation or a power abuse as teenagers from people. Now, it's interesting, the actual uh, profile of the predator is much more likely to be presenting himself or herself as a heterosexual married woman or man, mm-hmm. um, which which is interesting, right? So this is a kind of separate podcast, but I worried about how I learned to drive because um, there is a part of me that wants to be celebratory um, whenever I can. Um, And I don't, I hope that the ending of the play basically says we're, we're driving through this. Um, I'm hoping, Uh, but uh, I really feel that we have a lot to celebrate. Uh, and a lot, a lot of homage, um, and uh, an incredible community that continues to diversify. It's great. And, and speaking of celebrating your work, like it feels like how I get to drive finally gets this larger audience. And you know, hearing you say that a lot of your work is like, oh, it's not going to be to Broadway because you know you're a woman, whatever. Um, do you, are there other works of yours that you feel like didn't? get the audience that you wanted and it felt like it was ahead of their time? Well, I don't think we ever think that we're ahead of our time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's a very difficult notion. Um, I think every playwright is out of sync 
you know, I do feel that it, it's easier to be a prodigal son of playwriting. I feel that we have a hard time accepting women and lesbian comedians and uh, women and lesbian playwrights and writers. And that's because I think we resist culturally the notion of the prodigal daughter. There is a place in culture for the young man criticizing the father and then being re-embraced into the community. That doesn't happen, uh, or that hasn't happened. It's starting to. Mm. I mean, again, that's why it's such a wonderful time, I think, to be alive, if, if, if this makes sense. Um, are there plays that I'd like to go back to? Yes, but, you know, the reason that I'd like to go back to the play is is that other than Baltimore Waltz, How I Learned to Drive, and Indecent, um, all of the other plays I've written in my life, I wrote while I was working 60 hours a week. Wow. And um, that's what it takes to run a program, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, I started the program at Brown when I was 33, and I finally quit uh, at Yale when I was 65 because I'd never be able to complete Indecent, and it was too important to me. So I just stopped um, getting a salary uh, and fortunately made it to the point where I could get Social Security. And that allows me to go on the road and eat and live simply and have enough time to finish a play. It takes a lot of time rewriting and a lot of workshops. Hard to do. I mean, how I learned to drive the first time I was uh, teaching and running the program at Brown and I would leave three times a week at 5 a.m. to drive to New York in time for rehearsal and then drive back home so I could teach the next day and get home at maybe 11 o'clock at night. So, you know, I think a lot of us who we are subsidizing our art. And um, my regret is I feel that I have plays that are almost there. Um, I would love to go back into Mineola Twins. I'd love to make it a musical. Um, I'd love to do it with a, uh, you know, a woman's band or a trans band on stage singing songs that, you know, that horrible, excuse me, white woman music. <laughs> of the 1950s, you know, like, remember the joke I knew Doris Day before she was a virgin? Um, you know, <laughs> There was really only one choice for women singers in the 50s and almost through the 60s for women. And that was to be the virginal daughter. Mm -hmm. And this music is kind of revolutionary to look at. So I'd love to go cut the book in half, work with women composers and just say, hey, you know, this ended with a bombing of Planned Parenthood. Guess what? There's another chapter. Um, and we're right in it now. I would love to go back to Long Christmas Ride Home. Um, I would love to do it with Japanese-American and Japanese director. Um, And in this, I'm very aware that as a white woman, it's not my culture. And I did write it, and although I tried to expose that in the text, it was never finished. And I don't think it can be finished. I really feel as a playwright that I'm writing something that can only be finished in the theatrical process. And um, I would love to just turn it over to other artists and say, what do you want to do with it? Finish it. Um, 
Same thing with Civil War Christmas. Um, I'm about to ask some of my African-American colleagues to just take it and do whatever they want. Um, if you can adapt uh, Dickens, why not adapt me? Um, I want children in my community. I, I have um, a multiracial family, and I, I want their children um, to see the histories that aren't being told uh, in A Christmas Carol. What a radical way to look at your work. I, I don't think we've ever talked to anyone that was like, here, take this yeah. <laughs> and do what you want with it. That's amazing. Get soon, you know, so why not? Why not? <laughs> oh see it now. And what I'm talking about is actually done a lot by writers and television and film. You, you, you turn it over. So. Is that kind of how Indecent started for you too? Well, I have to say with Indecent, uh, I had gotten obsessed when I was in grad school, by God of Vengeance. Mm. Um, I actually did a, um, uh, a study of Yiddish theater. I became really fell in love. And, um, you know, that was kind of a note for me, you know, follow your Jewish side. Um, that really is, in terms of identity, uh, the side that I identify with. So uh, when I met uh, Rebecca, she had this idea about the obscenity trial, and I read the entire trial. And I, the reason I said yes was I started to see another play in my head. And I said, as I'm talking to you, I'm seeing actors rising in an attic with dust pouring off them and suitcases. And I think the play is about that. I think the play is about this group. And I saw it immediately. Well, it sounds like you were really drawn to God of Vengeance. And, you know, it, it does center on this first kiss between women on stage. Was that kind of what sparked your interest in it? Or, or what, what drew you to God of Vengeance initially? A professor looked at me. Now, in those days, you know, I was living on food stamps um, and um, uh, taking typing jobs to try and get my way through school. So I was dressed in my my overalls that I got at Salvation Army. That's how I went to uh, uh, seminars at Cornell. And uh, one of my professors looked at my attire for the day and said, I want you to go to the library and read The God of Vengeance tonight. <laughs> tonight. Went, yeah, he was like, tonight. I want you to go read The God of Vengeance tonight. And I read the first act. I'm like... Bert states, why did you tell me to read this? I mean, I'm in the stacks reading it, and then I get snacked. And I was standing in the library. I don't remember breathing. I remember going, oh, my God. And turning the page, and literally, have you ever talked to a play out loud in your hands as you're reading it? We well, definitely talked okay. to books that way. <laughs> I've definitely yelled at it. Yeah, I'm like, wait. <laughs> Why are you doing this? Don't do this. Yeah. Or, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this. So what I started talking to the book about was I was like, wait, wait, a 24-year-old man who is a newlywed man wrote this. And of course, subsequently, um, I recognized that he was himself aspiring to be a lesbian in love that he thought of uh, now 
good for you. I mean, it was a progressive at the time. He thought of lesbian love as being pure than uh, other forms of love. And he thought the love between two women was the purest form. I would be really interested to see what games were played in that newlywed uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um but he also, of course, and, you know, this was the, the end of the 19th century, this notion of inversion and that, you know, the older woman is more dominant than the younger woman who's pure and innocent. And I'm like, hell no, in my experience, as the younger woman, I'd be chasing <laughs> her. No way in hell am I going to be there passively waiting. Um, so, but, but... It was an incredible, I think, um, thing to write in 1905. Remarkable. Mm-hmm. When you have to think that in just 15 years, they were burning uh, books. Uh, well, more than 15 years. But they started burning books by sexologists um, in the street. Um, so to have this then go all through Europe, what... What an amazing thing. And to be embraced, embraced by the Yiddish communities, you know, that that women were thrilled to play the younger woman. And then as they got older, they could play the older woman Um, and they'd be thrilled in a company that their daughter would finally be of age to play one of the lesbians. Wow. Um, You know, it's it's one of those things that I think we all do. Right. It's like we didn't invent this. We're diversifying it. We're changing it. We're evolving it, but we didn't invent it. And how important it is to go on that search of who came before us. Mm. So thinking about who came before us. So you created a position that I later held at the Theater on Film and Tape Archive. uh, And that's the archive that records Broadway and off-Broadway shows. Um, And is there, thinking about theatrical history, like is there a part of that history that you feel is really overlooked and needs to be remembered and studied more? Well, first of all, let me just say a shout out because um, I was evicted the day that I applied for the job. Wow. And um, uh, I had been fired from Cornell because of my lesbianism. And wow. I had run out of my unemployment insurance and I got an eviction notice um, and I dummied up a resume as a secretary because I was. And I applied and I passed the typing test and met Betty Corwin, who within a week found, I didn't realize that in the library there are clipping files and all the playwrights. <laughs> she came to my desk and she said, Paula, you left a couple of things off your resume. <laughs> you know, like your graduate studies and your teaching and your writing. And I'm like, Betty, I can, I can type as fast. Just because I'm an ABD, I can type as fast as if, you know, I was a BA. And she said, it's not that I have to raise money now to give you a pay raise and a title raise. Wow. Which is how the job got created. Mm. Um, She was my first uh, employer that completely embraced my love for my partner and me, um, which was extraordinary. Um, So I think what Betty did was, by creating theater on film and tape, was extraordinary and necessary. Um, I feel that uh, we we keep doing this. We keep having companies 
that look at past shows. I would love just one show to have, one company like the Mint Theater or whatever, to have a season that looks at LGBT uh, earlier plays Mm -hmm. in the 19th and 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to see revivals of the drag and Mae West. Um, I, I, I really, I, I would subscribe to that season. Do we need to do more of that? Yes. But the other thing we need to do is make more visible the people who are writing that get one, you know, off Broadway production and then they disappear from the dominant culture. So for example, you know, there's so many absolutely brilliant writers in our community. I'm thinking of Eddie Sanchez, who may not be read as wisely, as widely as he should be. Um, he wrote a play called Merciful, Unmerciful Good Fortune that is astonishing. It needs to be given a major revival. So uh, my my feeling about this is, A, we have to start really putting pressure on not-for-profit theater companies, bringing the work. People don't know the work. I'll bring up names because of my age um, as, as we do planning for the next season of, of Bard at the Gates, uh, which is my uh, digital theater uh, archive that I'm creating, kind of an homage to Betty Corwin. Mm-hmm. By the way, did oh, you wow. enjoy working there? I did, did yeah. Enjoy- it was such a great job. I got to see so much theater. Um, yeah. and just, it felt like being a little part of theater history and helping make that happen. It felt really special. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I loved it too. Anyway. So, you know, I, there's a, there's, I, there's no wrong way to go about this. One is to make sure that we're showing visibility to the writers right now. The other thing is making sure that we're showing visibility to the emerging writers and not making them wait to the point that they apply to law school. And then thirdly, I feel that we need to recover our history and our theater history. So these are, you know, Philip Katanda, why are we not doing major revivals of this brilliant, gorgeous playwright? Why is Naomi Izuka not done with frequency? I could go on and on and on. I have so many heroes and heroines and what would be the non-binary word? I was just thinking that, like, theroines, zeros. Theroines. <laughs> or maybe just call everybody's heroes. And the way that I've stopped saying actress, mm-hmm. and I now just call people actors, you know, because it's a T-O-R, it's not really gender. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and, and that's what I'm hoping for... I'm I'm about to embark on more fundraising, but uh, in this third season, I would like to have a legacy writer who is still alive, who's had incredible impact in the shows. But then, you know, we rush on to the new, and we we don't hold on to these incredible accomplished writers. Um, so that's that's what, you know, is keeping me off the street these days is thinking of theater on film and tape and thinking, you know, now is it possible and it is possible to have an archive that's virtual rather than in a place so that um, I've got I, I just wrote uh, just about every 
a theater department in a public university or school, and I've written to 100 community colleges. I'm trying to increase the data bank. Um, for Lloyd Suss play, uh, what is it, Charlie, Charlie Chan Jr.'s Exotic Oriental Murder Mystery. If you haven't seen it, you can see it by going to the McCarter website. Okay. He's still my heart. So brilliant. And to know that students watch that from all 50 states wow. is thrilling. I want to make this accessible for high school students who are in a small town where they're feeling very solitary uh, because of their own sexuality, that there's a way that they can see theater rather than there may not be a repertory company. I want to be able to use this to pressure artistic directors to diversify our programming. Mm -hmm. And lastly, you know, I'm hoping that we just expand our own individual aesthetics by seeing the work of somebody like Dibika Guha or Issa Davis. I mean, all of these playwrights to me are household names. They're anyone. This is a, this is a little bit kind of one of my, I wouldn't call it a misfortune, but Once I read someone's play, they're in my brain rent-free forever. Um, There's something about reading a play and hearing somebody's voice where I I carry them around with me. Um, I want to afflict other people with... (laughs) (laughs) You need to. I'd say we'll put together our Paula Vogel's reading list just based on what you said so far of all these amazing playwrights. That's That's it's awesome just to hear how you're using like kind of the the technology to just increase access. I, I feel like that was one weird silver lining of the pandemic was it made us less precious about um, access. So it's great to hear all the work you're doing with Bard at the Gate. Well, I think digital theater is doing something that we haven't been able to do. We've been running theater uh, based on capitalism. It's a terrible model. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And that means limiting access to monetize tickets. What a hideous, hideous model. <laughs> so um, as I raise money, I've been saying to people, first of all, it's already proven that if you see Hamilton online, it, it increases the desire to see it on tour or in person. Mm-hmm. It doesn't compete. It's not a survival of the fittest. And I've started to say to people, you know, the first sports broadcast was in 1938. What would have happened to sports if they had decided, no, 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 we have to be poor. You can only see it, you know, freezing in the snow in the stadium. We will not recognize the art form. You know, it's always been the case with art and theater and, and music mm-hmm. is that the more that there's a supply and access, the more that there's a demand. Mm-hmm. So uh, this, again, is something that I feel we have been slowly descending into a, a censorship by not making all of our artwork, all of our theater accessible and having the same attitude about theater as we have about a library or a museum. There are days when it's absolutely free. You don't pay for your library card. This is something that the richest citizens in our midst should be paying for and the government should be paying for. Absolutely. I actually hate to charge for tickets. I really do. Mm. I would appreciate that world. Holly, should we move into querying the canon, yeah. do you think? 
Okay. So we have a section of our show we call Queering the Canon. And so we've, we've talked about this a little bit, but is there a something from theater history, which you are extremely well versed in, so this might be hard to pick, um, that you would like to rewrite and queerly adapt? Besides Indecent and God of Vengeance. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I did kind of create and pitch an idea that uh, my original thesis that I didn't turn in because I got fired and they told me to rewrite the whole thing um, was about restoration comedies. And I was looking at how gender was being used as a kind of warfare between Tory men and Whig men. Um, and women were being used as pawns. Um, a, it was a comedy of adultery. Um, and there was specifically a, a, the first professional woman playwright, Afra Bain, wrote plays with a lot of breeches roles, which is interesting. Hmm. Um, so I started thinking, what can I do from that period of time? And there's a play called The Country Wife, written in the 1600s about a man who wants to sleep with all of his best friend's wives. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they they know he's just, you know, a predator. So they shield their wives. And so he gets a doctor to proclaim that he's had syphilis and that he's now a eunuch. As a result of surgical intervention and the sickness he can no longer have sex. And the doctor says, you want me to spread this with your reputation as a ladies' man all through London? And the guy says, yes, do it. So then his friends insist that he accompany their wives to the opera no. and to whatever <laughs> while they're out screwing other men's wives. Anyway, I thought it was kind of fabulous. That's and wild. <laughs> I came up with the idea of an actress in Hollywood who was pretending to celebrate her 35th birthday for the fifth year in a row with all of her best friends who are actresses pretending to be in their 20s, but they're all in their later 30s. And they're losing boyfriends because all the executives want the sweet, young 21-year-old. You know, the misogyny of Hollywood is extraordinary. And now they're all competing to be play district attorney. And our protagonist at the time, I named her Corner after the um, lead character in Country Wife, goes, that's it. I can't do this anymore. They're all eating salad with a little bit of salad dressing on the side <laughs> and drinking maybe a glass of white wine. She goes, screw it. I want a double hamburger <laughs> right now. I want a real drink. And she says to her friends, I want you to go to every casting director in Hollywood tomorrow and tell them I'm lesbian. And they say, are you kidding me? but you've never slept with women. She says, it's a role. I can learn like any other. <laughs> and then it becomes this sex comedy about being a lesbian in Hollywood. Um, so that would be my adaptation, uh, would be the country wife. I think that would be a lot of fun to do. Oh my God. I love that. <laughs> Please do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I keep thinking, how do I write uh, a lesbian love story? Um, and, and I'm just not sure how to do it, if that makes sense. Mm. I can think of how to include a lesbian love story in a tapestry, mm. um, if that makes sense. Or I keep trying to find, I, for a while I thought about writing about Well of Loneliness. Um, you guys, did you ever read that book? Oh, there's a story there. We, we have <laughs> 
<laughs> we have a book club and it's <laughs> what year are we in holly six? holly started it yeah we have a queer book club we started six years ago and that book comes up like several times a year of like should we read this next and everyone's like oh it's too sad like, we're not ready <laughs> <laughs> so no i haven't read it <laughs> we need to but yeah. we have not <laughs> we need to queer that book mm. now there's a book that needs to be queered um i have seen productions that have queered the children's hour uh-huh. Um, undergraduates have done that at Brown University, mm-hmm. which which is great. Um, the other thing that I will say that I don't know what we should do with it in Catholic University, the, where I was very careful, but I think it was high, hard to hide my lesbianism by then. I was cast as the butch lesbian in the killing of Sister George. Oh my god! And that's where I learned to smoke cigars and became addicted to cigars. During the post discussion, the audience told me that no one believed I was a lesbian. And that's when the light bulb went off. I wasn't supposed to be an actor. That I had to find some other way. Not convincing. There were some really wonderful, like scary, like the Children's Hour, uh, like uh, Well of Loneliness. Um, What's the other one? The Fox. You guys know this? I don't know the Fox. I don't know the Fox. Horrible novel. I think it's D.H. Lawrence. It was made into a film with Sandy Duncan. Um, And it is every myth in the book about Mm -hmm. lesbianism. So this might be a kind of fun thing to throw out and say, do people want to gather and do a bake-off on one of these? Like you have, you know, a queer book club. Let's do a queer bake-off where we get some of these really homophobic, or I call them sapphophobic, sapphophobic, you know, misogynist, uh, mainstream plays, and break every bone in the text and create something off, off, of, the, uh, off of the bones. Oh, yeah, that'd be that'd awesome. Be fun to do. Yeah, that's an excellent idea. Yeah. <laughs> Our next section is a queer culture rec- rec. Uh, so outside of theater, what's your queer culture indulgence? It could be like a book or a TV show or a movie or an event. Mm. Oh, well, I, um, I know her and I absolutely love her work. Uh, and that would be going to a Cheryl Wheeler concert. Have you guys ever attended a Cheryl Wheeler concert? No. Sounds like we have to. She's a songwriter. um, And she's a brilliant lyricist. And she's had a couple of covers done in Nashville. Um, But she is funny, outrageous, queer, um, extremely political and savvy. Um, And my idea of a thrilling time um, is going into a community that tracks Cheryl Wheeler from from town to town. Um, <laughs> I think everybody should listen to her. Awesome. Nice. Thank you for sharing. I definitely also, will. Also, guys, they're no longer together, but if you can track them down, the Bush Tetras. Okay. The Bush Tetras were a, a punk rock group in the 1970s. And their most famous hit was Snake's Crawl. But my favorite Bush Tetra um, all-woman band was You Taste Like the Tropics. Um, Pretty fabulous. 
Yeah. I wonder if they're that on would Spotify. Be my... <laughs> yeah. We'll well, look... If they're not, they should be. Okay. Uh, we'll fat. find yeah. them. <laughs> I'm sure they're on YouTube somewhere. Right. Yeah. We'll find them and link them. Don't worry. Right, right, <laughs> That's <right>. awesome. <laughs> Um, and then a queer gives. So if there is a uh, charity or a mutual aid fund, maybe Bart at the Gates, something you'd like to shout out where our listeners could do more to support or even potentially give to support. First of all, I would love if anybody wants to give to Bart at the Gate. Um, uh, we are dedicated to an LGBTQ uh, a writers, playwrights, um, playwrights of color, disabled playwrights. Um, we are planning uh, our indigenous uh, uh, indigenous playwright uh, for the next season. So we have a national advisory committee um, that is sending in these works that should be done, must be done, and so we have to do them. That would be great. And if anyone wanted to give, it's www.mccarter.org. Org. And if you scroll down the, the page, you'll see Bard at the gate, and there's a way to give to, to McCarter. Um, I will say, though, I did give this some thought because I'm trying to find out for myself. So I want to kind of also query back this. Um, I was very fortunate when How I Learned to Drive came out to be able to go to uh, high schools like... Uh, Harvey Milk, but also the Eagle Academy in Los Angeles for LGBTQ students in high school. And I think it's so crucial right now. I've started to do a little research about what is out there. I feel right now that a couple of things, I would love to see all of us organize. There's going to be Gay Pride in Orlando in October. And particularly because this is also the town of, of the Pulse Massacre. I think it would be extraordinary um, for people to support that march. Um, but there are also uh, more and more uh, organizations in Florida. There's something called Florida Equality that would be a good place probably. I'm about to look them up. Um, there's an organization called Tent for Trans mm. Students in Texas. Um, and, uh, I'm actually here, I'm going to just, uh, put these out. Trans allies, SA and out youth are all there in Texas right now. Um, Florida transgender education network of Texas is 10. Mm -hmm. Um, and Florida, you know, I think probably Florida equality is a good place to start, but I'd love to hear back from people um, about ways um, that we can all engage um, with our bodies, with, you know, dollars, um, with emails and social media. Um, I am uh, incredibly worried. As the writer of How I Learned to Drive, I feel that by um, trying to make um, LGBTQ students silent they are creating a breeding ground for predators mm. so this use of the word pedophile that's being flung around by trumpers is a way of dismissing and making fun of what is happening to our youth 
Um, and where you foster shame and silence, you foster predation. So for me, personally, if anybody wants to reach uh, back to me, I have a, a Twitter account for at least the next week until I find out what Elon Musk is doing. Um, <laughs> and if you guys know, you know, here's a good organization or or here, you know, to to help um, teachers and parents and students. I really thank you for that information. Sure. And is Twitter the best way for folks to reach you and to follow what you're doing? Probably Twitter. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm going to have to really, although Instagram is also Twitter, isn't it? It's Facebook. Oh, it's Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Well, not <laughs> I'm not take Facebook, but it's not Twitter. So I think yeah. <laughs> I'll have to switch over to, uh, to Instagram if, if this is going to go in the direction I feel it goes. Yeah. Holly, you have to tell Paul about the tweet you saw today. Oh. What'd you see? Uh, my coworker sent me a tweet that said, I wish Paula Vogel bought Twitter. <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. Oh my God. It's like this wonderful man who started this thing. She, he started making t-shirts that said, more Vogel, less mammoth. Um, these t-shirts and now i'm seeing which is really wonderful you know more more so less mammoth uh-huh. more mm-hmm. more nodage you know it's it god bless this this man um i forget <laughs> his last name but oh my god it just brings such joy um oh my god yeah we need those shirts yeah. <laughs> we will find those too and share it with our listeners that's so amazing many other options besides him yeah yeah <laughs> Oh my gosh. You know what? I'm I'm going to say something about my identity and my gender that sure. is different. And we don't really have a category for it. But um there should be a new category for a queer aunt/grandmother. Hmm. Um that uh, you know, I don't know if there's a queer version of Bubba or Bubby, you know, I don't know if there's a queer version or a non-gender version. Um, but I, I do very thankfully, uh, feel like a caretaker, um, of everyone else's children, um, and, and younger people, uh, in our community. Um, and it's such a blessing. So, uh, that's kind of where my gender is these days. Mm, we do need a word for that. Yeah. I have nieces on my partner's family side and they call me Zanti. Uh, Zanti. That's Zanti. Yeah. Oh, Holly, that's a good one. Zanty. Well, I think we're at the end of our time. Sadly, I want to talk to you all day. Yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. I'm Now that we've talked to each other, we'll run into each other. Do you guys, where do you guys live? We're in New York. York. In New York. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now that this has happened, you know, we'll run into each other on street corners, which is will be a delight. I love that. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. This was amazing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Thank you for everything. Thanks for listening. If you like, please rate and review us and share us with your friends. So excited to hear your queer culture recommendations or any of your ideas on how we could queer the canon. You can call us, yes, actually call us and leave us a voicemail at 845-445-9251 or send us an email at 
thesisonjoan at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it queer. Not that it'd be that hard for y'all to do. <laughs> Maybe our dogs will meet. Yes. Yeah, where were the dogs? Oh, yeah. Come here. What am Maybe, I, top liver? <laughs> Indigo, come here. This is Indigo. Oh, honey. Is that a border? So she's an Australian shepherd, but she looks like a border collie. Look. That's my favorite species. Anne wouldn't let me have one. Oh, they're so active, but they're the best. Yeah. So in our age, we're getting corgis who think they're Australian shepherds. Oh, but corgis are. Here, do you want to do a spin, Indy? Indy, spin. Oh, Indy, you are beautiful. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she's the girl. best girl. Yeah. Oh, how old is she? She just turned two, like two weeks ago. Oh, that's great. Yeah. But corgis are like just as crazy as Australian Shepherds, I think. I don't know. They're crazy, but you can run with them for half an hour rather than, you know, five months. Oh, rather than, yeah, exactly. She said, oh. she said Australian Shepherds are great for lesbians who are 30 years old and run five miles a day with you or not. That's me and my wife, except the running. We walk, we can walk five miles <laughs> a day. You run a lot. <laughs> this is business. Oh, this beauty. We're busy. <laughs> Business, business. <laughs> did you go out on the street and and help this? Business. He does. Yes. That what Holly says? Business. Yeah. Oh, how old is business? Uh, he's almost two. At the end of May. Are Are you getting together with your dogs for play? We We do. Uh, we have because oh, we live pretty close to each other. They love each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I'm sorry I don't have my 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 corgis here. Uh, oh, the okay. oldest one is 12, and the youngest one is now five, that we we named Dingo, because I wanted to go on the beach in the summer when there are little infants playing around and have mothers say, what's your dog's name? And then say, Dingo, as in Dingo ate my baby. I never think it's very funny, though. I do. I love that. Wait, is that a Buffy reference? Well, no, it's not. It's Dingo Ate My Baby. Was is, it Seinfeld? No, it no. was Meryl Streep, the movie Streep. about the woman who was um, jailed oh. for killing her daughter in a dingo. Oh, my God. Oh, I've heard that saying, but that. I've never known what it was from. It, <laughs> oh it was Meryl Streep in an Australian accent, which I cannot do, going, a dingo <laughs> ate my baby. I can't do it, but she was amazing in that. Wow. So that's the line from the there, wow. There's a band in Buffy called Dingoes Ate My Baby. <laughs> oh, oh, this is, you know, I've never, I haven't watched Buffy. I know I should. I'll put it on my Classic. list. <laughs> Classic. Great. Anyway, thank you for showing me and sharing your dogs with me. Hey, it's Leslie Udom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.